Last week we saw that God's mission is the glory of God. And we've had that theme already here this morning, but I just want to re-emphasize that, that to understand the Bible is to understand God unveiling his glory primarily in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. But this extends down to every detail, including even bloody Nile rivers, which was the first plague that we saw last week, and gnats and flies. These all are shouting God's glory and God's supremacy. And we have seen that God's purpose in the plagues was to display that glory by enacting judgment on Egypt and mercy on Israel. And this theme continues in the, uh, the rest of our five plagues here. We're going to look at them quickly, and then we're going to seek some ap- applications. So, very quick reminder, Israel, terrible slavery. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. Not all those years were slavery, but by the time God sends Moses, things are pretty bad. And uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, God told me to tell you to let my, his people go. And Pharaoh's response summarizes, really sets this, the table for all of this. He says, I don't know this God. Why should I care what this God thinks? I'm not going to give freedom to my entire workforce. Uh, have a nice day. And as we uh, noted last week, oh, Pharaoh, you're about to know who this God is. And so we have then the enacting of the plagues. These are divine judgments from God. They are... Uh, each of them a weapon of mass destruction. If any one of these 10 hit us here, even in our modern day, it would be devastating. But all of them are showing God's sovereign power over aspects of life in Egypt, aspects that the Egyptians attributed to their gods, and specifically to Pharaoh, as the, uh, as the Pharaoh and the God over Egypt. And all of them are saying, there is only one God, and it isn't Pharaoh, and it's not you. His name is Yahweh, the one God of Israel. Now, with that said, let's go quickly through plagues six through nine. Okay, so if you want to turn to Exodus uh, nine, uh, we're going to go quickly through these. But plague number six, boils. That would get your attention, wouldn't it? I would say so. Here's here's, uh, chapter nine, verse eight. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Now there is irony in this plague because how were the bricks made that the Israelites were required to make. And if you remember in the story, they said, we're not providing the straw anymore, but you gotta make the same amount of bricks. They were made in these kilns. And one commentator notes the irony that God takes the soot from the, from the, the very kilns that they had to make uh, these bricks from and uses them now in a judgment on Egypt. So boils, I thought about putting a picture up Just something sort of like oozing, poison ivy on steroids. If you've ever had poison ivy, you know how terrible it is. I I remember I had poison ivy one time all up and down my leg, down my arms. I had it, it wouldn't go away. It was miserable. Maybe you can relate to that. So some kind of terrible rash 
I call that misery, and indeed, a very effective plague. Plague number seven, hail and thunder. Plague number eight, locusts. This is getting terrible, isn't it? Here's what God forewarns Pharaoh about the hail and the thunder. He says this in chapter nine, verse 13. Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. He basically says, I could have just wiped you out. But for this purpose, I raised you up to show you my power. And here's the theme Wes hit on as well. So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God makes it clear to Pharaoh, I could have just killed you all. I could have wiped you all out in a moment. But your purpose is to be the place where my glory is on display. And we know from Scripture Again, Wes quoted Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory. There isn't anything in this whole world and the story of humanity, and there never will be, that doesn't in some way end up for the praise of the glory of God. And this includes even evil. If Satan can be for the praise of God's glory, then this Pharaoh can be for the praise of God's glory. Somehow, in the mystery of God's purposes and plans, and you pick a tyrant, you pick an evil person in history, even Satan is for the glory of God. As Luther said, the devil is God's devil. He had a way with words. The devil is God's devil. God is not the author of evil, but he uses evil to display his own glory and his good. And so Pharaoh and the plagues are yet another example of how a sovereign God uses great evil for great good. Now, is Pharaoh the ultimate example of this in the Bible? No. The ultimate example is the cross of Jesus Christ. If we think about what is the greatest injustice, the greatest evil that has ever been done, it most certainly was the murder of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. And yet we see again, even in the cross, how a sovereign God takes evil and the evil intents of Judas and Pilate and Herod and the others and turns it into the greatest good. Only a sovereign God could do that. He makes it for the praise of his glory. So here in the story, destructive storms come and swarms of locusts come and they eat everything. At this point in the story, all the food is gone, the shelves are bare, they are experiencing a severe supply problem. I said that wrong. I liked it better the way I said it. A severe supply chain problem, such as we're dealing with somewhat today. Even Pharaoh's servants are like, Pharaoh, do you realize what is going on here? Here's the direct quote. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? The greatest kingdom of its day lies in ruins, and that's only after eight of the plagues. Here comes number nine, darkness, okay? Darkness, I'm gonna read the text because you all know what darkness is, but somehow a supernatural kind of darkness came where people literally couldn't even see each other. Maybe the worst fog in all of history in homes where there are not glass, just open air windows, descends in, it says everyone just laid in bed for three days. Now that doesn't sound so bad to me, honestly. But where Israel lived, it was sunny. And we begin to see again 
the distinction between the judgment of God and the mercy of God. Was this enough for Pharaoh to relent? You know the answer. No, it was not. Which leads to plague number 10. Now, in order, plague 10 happens after Passover, and Passover we're looking at next week, but I want to note it here as it is the most terrifying of all the plagues. And there is indeed irony in the fact that God would kill the firstborn of all Egypt because do you remember what did Pharaoh try to do to Israel? Kill the firstborn of all Israel. And we see God now turning that judgment back onto them with a terrible judgment, the killing of every Egyptian firstborn. And I'm just gonna pause right now and let's just be honest, this is a hard one to swallow. This is a tough one. And it's hard with so much more yet to come in the Bible story, even in Israel. I mean, God's about to, not to ruin the story, but he's gonna, he's gonna kill the entire army of, of Egypt in the Red Sea. And uh, he commands them to go into Canaan and to wipe out all the people groups that are there. And we could go even further beyond that and to see God eventually is going to judge every single person who's ever lived and it's either heaven or hell, and Jesus said there'll be more in hell. Wide is the path to destruction, narrow the gate to salvation. All of this is hard, because we think about God and his love and God and his mercy, but then we have the plagues, and then we have the killing of the firstborn, and all these other things. And what we see here is also the God of heaven, the God that we worship. How great is our God, how great are his judgments, how great is his holiness? How great is his justice? This has led some people to wrongly think the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and the God of the New Testament is a God of love and mercy. Uh, no, he is the same God. He is not bipolar. He never changes. Better to see here in God's judgment also his mercy. Did God not tell Pharaoh and forewarn Pharaoh all of these things? And even when Israel leaves Egypt, you know what we find amongst them? Egyptians who saw the plagues and decided to believe in the God of the Hebrews. So we see in all of this the full character of God on display. And the death of the firstborn leading Gentiles to believe in the God of heaven. Does that sound familiar to you as well? The death of a firstborn? leading Gentiles to believe. Of course, Jesus' death as the only begotten Son of God, leading millions of Gentiles to believe in God, including those of us here today. We see ourselves even in this part of the story. But we just have to acknowledge that there is a mystery and there is a majesty and there is a terror to the holiness and the wrath of God. And I guarantee when we stand before God and we see him in the splendor of his holiness, these sorts of aspects of God are going to become more evident. I don't have time for this, but just to pause and to say, so many of us have a God of our own making. We sort of make the God that we want. And I, I like God's love, and I, I like his grace. Let's focus on his grace. And we minimize these aspects of God that he has also revealed in Scripture, but someday we're gonna see him as he is. And I rather think his holiness and the splendor of his holiness will be something that we feel like our time on earth we missed. 
So with that said, those are the the 10 plagues. I want to draw all these things together with some applications. And continuing the theme that I've just been on, to realize that the plagues were terrible. I mean, who would want to go through those 10 plagues? None of us would. But we have to realize what lies ahead is worse. Displays of God's judgment in the past are very somber, and they ought to make us really, I mean, the flood. We say, oh yeah, God flooded the earth, and then Noah and the ark, and kids make arcs, and we think it's so cute with the animals, but do you realize how many people died in the flood? That that was an enacting of God's justice as well? Here's how Hebrews says it. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the plagues put that sort of terror on display, but they're not as bad as it gets. Hell is far worse than being in Egypt during the 10 plagues. There are people right now there who would love to just be dealing with gnats and flies. It's far worse what is coming. Secondly, who is responsible for a hard heart? I said last week that we were gonna touch on this, and one of the challenging things as you read the plagues is that before they happen, God says, I'm gonna harden Pharaoh's heart. And then you read the story, and it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then you read a little further, and it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and then a little later it says that God hardened his heart. And we sort of step back and say, well, whose fault is this then? Like, is Pharaoh actually responsible for God hardening his heart? I mean, it seems somewhat unfair from one perspective. And what I want us to just realize from this is that the Bible doesn't actually answer this in a way that we all go, got it. There is always a tension in the Bible between what appears to us to be divine judgment and also human responsibility divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Is Pharaoh responsible for his hard heart? If you read the story, yes, he is. God holds Pharaoh responsible for the choices that he makes as the leader of Egypt. And yet we step back and say, wait a second, isn't God sovereign over those choices? And if God is sovereign over those choices, then how can Pharaoh be responsible for it? And this is the age-old question theologians wrestle with, the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And there are some people, they kind of, they edge over on the one side and they say, well, it's just fatalistic and, and God's just in charge and so what can we do? And then there's other people on the other side that want to say, well, apparently God's not sovereign because we don't want to have human beings that are, uh, that are not free and have a free will to make any decision that they want. So therefore God is not sovereign or he's sovereign over everything except the free will choices of a human being. And what I would say to you is that the better answer here is to acknowledge that there is mystery and that the Bible says both are true. Pharaoh was responsible for the choices that he made and God held him responsible. And that means that you and I are responsible for the choices that we make, and that God is going to hold us responsible for those choices. But at the same time, in the mystery of the glory of God, he is also sovereign over choices that we make that perfectly fulfill his will and his purposes. And if you come up to me after the service and say, Pastor Steve, I'd like you to explain that in a little more detail, I'm gonna go, I don't got any. 
it's one of these things we just go, only God, okay? But we don't give up either one. If you give up on the one side, you have a small God. If you get up on the other side, give up on the other side, you have a fatalistic approach, which the Bible also does not teach. Even the Apostle Paul reaches back in Romans as he's explaining the sovereignty of God. He reaches back uh, to this very point and he says in Romans 9, 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. One way to look at this is to compare the leader of Egypt with the leader of Assyria. You know, there's another story in the Bible where God extends a message of judgment through a prophet called Jonah, and he goes to Nineveh, the leading city of Assyria, which was also the leading empire of its day, with a message that God's gonna take you down. And Jonah tells Nineveh that, and there's a different response. What does Nineveh do? Nineveh humbles itself. The king sits in sackcloth and ashes. They call upon the mercy of God, and God relents from his judgment. And my encouragement is to be a Syrian, not Egyptian. Be a Syrian, not Egyptian. If your heart is hard against God today, God will hold you responsible for that. But see also in the story, the mercy of God, that if we choose to soften our hearts and repent, God will extend mercy as he did in Nineveh. Next, why 10 plagues when just one would have done? Why 10 plagues when one would have been good enough? Surely if God would simply have done number 10, Egypt would have said, see you later, okay? You kill everyone's firstborn, we don't want you to be here anymore. We would feel the same way. Why go through the gnats and the flies and darkness and livestock and thunder and all these other things? And what we see here is a regular pattern in how God works. And I mean this as an encouragement for all of us here today. If you look in the Bible, the God who can do things like that most of the time doesn't. He normally does things incrementally. Could he have created the entire universe by going, boom, there you are. Sure he could have. But no, on day one he did this, and on day two he did this, and on day three he did that. Why? Could Jesus have simply come to earth as an adult, died on the cross, and been done with it? Sure he could have. God has the power to do that. But how did God choose to do it? God chose to have uh, angels go to Mary and, and for there to be Joseph and they gotta get all the way down to Bethlehem and they have this whole thing and then they go to Egypt and then they come back and he lives 33 years. And I mean, Jesus could have just died on the cross and gone back to heaven and we still would have a gospel and we still would have salvation. But we see the way that God works. He works incrementally. He works often slowly. Maybe you feel today like, you know, if I summarize my life, I feel like I'm on plague number three. I'm, I'm living gnats right now. I'm ready for the Red Sea. Let's get to the Red Sea. I want to walk through the water. I want the miracle of God. I want the promised land. Why am I living with gnats and locusts? And the, it's the same reason 
that we see here because God works incrementally in our lives. That for God, the journey is as important as the destination. And we see a good example of that here. So, if, you want to, if you're gonna walk with Jesus, you better be ready to live life in the slow lane. Because typically, God works slower than we want him to. And this shows us one of the reasons. And finally, and I'm so excited about this last point, I've been thinking about the plagues in Jesus. Okay, the plagues in Jesus. How many plagues were evident when Jesus died? If you get thinking about it, I think nine of, nine of the 10, all were there at the cross of Jesus Christ. Like the Nile, there was blood. Like the ninth plague, there was darkness. If locusts represent no food, Jesus was hungry. If a bloody Nile represents nothing to drink, Jesus was thirsty. If, po- if boils are painful skin, Jesus was flogged. While not directly exactly the same, I think there were nine of the 10 plagues evident. And we see God's judgment on Jesus, which that's what the cross was. God treated Jesus as if he was the sinners that we are. And we see that divine judgment come down upon Jesus in terrifying ways. Remember, when he died, the ground shook. When he died, the veil was torn in two. When he died, the events in creation and all of that were such that the Roman centurion who saw Jesus die said this, surely this man was the son of God. And you know what? When he comes back, many of these plagues reappear. There will be signs and wonders. There will be darkness. The sun and moon will be changed to look like blood. The stars are going to flee. There will be thunder. And the world will shake when the Son of God comes. And if Pharaoh was standing right here as somebody who's already gone through it, he would affirm it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If only there was some way to avoid God's judgment. If only there was some way that he would pass over me and my sin. And Passover is exactly that. This is what God does by the atoning work of Jesus on the cross for all who trust and believe in him. And I just want to say, make sure that God's future wrath on your sin is passed over by virtue of your personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. And that's how you go from the plagues and gnats and flies and darkness and the death of firstborns to be reminded again of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to rejoice in him today. Amen. Amen. Amen.